Book One, Chapter Eight of Under the Witch's Moon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Under the Witch's Moon by Nathan Galazier. Book One, Chapter Eight. The Shrine of Hecate. Athwart the gleaming balconies of the east, the morning sun shone golden, and the shadows of the white marble cornices and capitals and jutting friezes were blue with the reflection of the cloudless sky. Far below Mount Aventine, the soft mists of dawn still hovered over the seven-hilled city, whence the distant cries of the water-carriers and fruit-vendors came echoing up from the waking streets. A fugitive sunbeam stole through a carelessly closed lattice of a chamber in the palace of Theodora, and danced now on the walls, bright with many a painted scene, now on the marble inlaid mosaic of the floor. Now and then a bright blade or the jewelled rim of a wine-cup of eastern design would flash back the wayward ray, until its shaft rested on a curtained recess wherein lay a faintly outlined form. Tenderly the sunbeams stole over the white limbs that veiled their chiselled roundness under the blue-shot webs of their wrappings, which, at the capricious tossing of the sleeper, bared two arms, white as ivory, and wonderful in their statuesque moulding. The face of the sleeper showed creamy white under a cloud of dark silken hair, held back in a net of gold from the broad smooth forehead. Dark, exquisitely penciled eyebrows arched over the closed transparent lids, fringed with lashes that now and then seemed to flicker on the marble pallor of the cheeks, and the proudly poised head lay back, half buried in the cushions, supported by the gleaming white arms that were clasped beneath it. Then, as if fearful of intruding on the charms that his ray had revealed, the sunbeam turned and, kissing the bosom that swelled and sank with the sleeper's gentle breathing, descended till it rested on an overhanging foot, from which a carelessly fastened sandal hung by one vermilion strap. Of a sudden a light footfall was audible without, and in an instant the sleeper had heard and awakened, her dark eyes heavy with drowsiness, the red lips parted revealing two rows of small pearly teeth, with the first deep breath of returning consciousness. At the sound one white hand drew the silken wrappings over the limbs, that a troubled slumber and the warmth of the Roman summer night had bared, while the other was endeavouring to adjust the disordered folds of the saffron gossamer web that clung like a veil to her matchless form. Ah. "'It is but you, Persephone,' she said with a little sigh, as a curtain was drawn aside, revealing the form of a girl about twenty-two years old, whose office as first attendant to Theodora had been firmly established by her deep cunning, a thorough understanding of her mistress's most hidden moods and desires, her utter fearlessness, and a native fierceness that recoiled from no consideration of danger. Persephone was tall, straight as an arrow, lithe and sinuous as a snake. Her face was beautiful, but there was something in the gleam of those slightly slanting eyes that gave pause to him who chanced to cross her path. She claimed descent from some mythical eastern potentate, and was a native of Circassia, the land of beautiful women. No one knew how she had found her way to Rome. The fame of Morosia's evil beauty and her sinister repute had in time attracted Persephone, 
and she had been immediately received in Marozia's service, where she remained till the revolt of Alberic swept her mistress into the dungeons of Castel San Angelo. Thereupon she had attached herself to Theodora, who loved the wild and beautiful creature and confided in her utterly. "'Evil and troubled have been my dreams,' Theodora continued, as the morning light fell in through the parted curtains. At the sound of your footfall I started up, fearing I knew not what. "'For a long time I have held out against his pleadings and commands,' Persephone replied in a subdued voice, knowing that my lady slept. But he will not be denied, and his insistence had begun to frighten me, so at last I dared brave my lady's anger and disturb her. "'Frighten you, Persephone?' Theodora's musical laughter resounded through the chamber. "'You, who braved death at these white hands of mine without flinching?' She extended her hands as if to impress Persephone with their beauty and strength. Whatever the circumstance referred to, Persephone made no reply. Only her face turned a shade more pale. The draped figure had meanwhile arisen to her full height, as she stretched the sleep from her limbs, then, her question remaining unanswered, she continued. "'But of whom do you speak? A new defiance from Roxana? A new insult from the senator of Rome? I would have it understood—this with a slight lift of the voice—that even were the end of the world at hand, of which they prate so much of late, and heaven and earth to crumble into chaos, I would not be disturbed to listen to shallow plaints and mock heroics.' "'It is neither the one nor the other,' replied Persephone, with an apprehensive glance of her slanting eyes over her shoulder. "'But my Lord Basil, the Grand Chamberlain, he waits without where the eunuchs guard your slumber, and his eyes are aflame with something more than impatience.' At the mention of the name a subtle change passed over the listener's face, and a sombre look crept into her eyes as she muttered, "'What can he be bringing now?' Then, with a sudden flash, she added, tossing back her beautiful head, "'Let the Lord Basil wait. And now, Persephone, remove from me the traces of sleep, and set the couches in better order.' Silently and quickly the Circassian sprang forward and rolled back the curtains from the lattices, letting a stronger but still subdued light enter the chamber, revealing as it did many a chaste casket, and mirrors of polished steel and bronze and lighting up exquisite rainbow-hued fabrics, thrown carelessly over lion-armed chairs, with here and there an onyx table wonderfully carved. The chamber itself looked out upon a terrace and garden, a garden filled with such a marvellous profusion of foliage and flowers that, looking at it from between the glistening marble columns surrounding the palace, it seemed as though the very sky above rested edgewise on towering pyramids of red and white bloom. Awnings of softest pale blue stretched across the entire width of the spacious outer colonnade, where a superb peacock strutted majestically to and fro, with boastfully spreading tail and glittering crest, as brilliant as the gleam of the hot sun on the silver fringe of the azure canopies, amidst the gorgeousness of waving blossoms that seemed to surge up like a sea to the very windows of the chamber. Filling an embossed bowl with perfumed water, Persephone bathed the hands of her mistress, who had sunk down upon a low tapestried couch. 
Then, combing out her luxuriant hair, she bound it in a jewelled netting that looked like a constellation of stars against the dusky masses it confined. Taking a long sleeveless robe of amber, Persephone flung it about her subtle form, and bound it over breast and shoulders with a jewelled band. But Theodora's glance informed her that something was still wanting, and following the direction of her gaze, Persephone's eye rested on a life-size statue of Hecate, that stood with deadly calm on its inexorable face and slightly raised hands, from one of which hung something that glittered strangely in the subdued light of the recess. Obeying Theodora's silent gesture, Persephone advanced to the image, and took from its raised arm a circlet fashioned of two golden snakes, with brightly enameled scales, bearing in their mouths a single diamond, brilliant as summer lightning. This she gently placed on her mistress's head, so that the jewel flamed in the centre of the coronet. Then, kneeling down, she drew together the unlatched sandals. Persephone's touch roused her mistress from a daydream that had set her features as rigid as ivory, as she surveyed herself for a moment intently in a great bronze disc whose burnished surface gave back her flawless beauty line for line. In Persephone's gaze she read her unstinted admiration, for, beautiful as the Circassian was, she loved beauty in her own sex wherever she found it. Theodora seemed to have utterly forgotten the presence of the Grand Chamberlain in the anteroom, yet, in an impersonal way, her thoughts occupied themselves with the impending tete-a-tete. Her life had been one constant round of pleasure and amusement, yet she was not happy, nor even contented. Day by day she felt the want of some fresh interest, some fresh excitement. And it was this craving, probably, more than innate depravity, which plunged her into those disgraceful and licentious excesses that were nightly enacted in the sunken gardens behind her palace. Lovers she had had by the scores, yet each new face possessed for her but the attraction of novelty. The favourite of the hour had small cause to plume himself on his position. No sooner did he believe himself to be secure in the possession of Theodora's love than he found himself hurled into the night of oblivion. A strange pagan wave held Rome enthralled. Italy was in the throes of a dark revulsion. A woman, beautiful as she was evil, had exercised within the past decade her baleful influence from Castel San Angelo. Theodora had taken up Marozia's tainted inheritance. Members of a family of courtesans, they looked upon their trade as a hereditary privilege, and, like the ancient Aspasias, these Roman women of the tenth century triumphed primarily by means of their feminine beauty and charms over masculine barbarism and grossness. It was an age of feudalism, when brutal force and murderous fury were the only divinities whom the barbarian conqueror was compelled to respect. Lombards and Huns, Franks and Ostrogoths, Greeks and Africans, the savage giants issuing from the deep Teutonic forests, invading the classic soil of Rome, became so many Herculeses sitting at the feet of Omphali, and the atmosphere of the city by the Tiber, the atmosphere that had nourished the Messalinas of imperial Rome, poured the flame of ambition into the soul of a woman whose beauty released the strongest passions in the hearts of those with whom she surrounded herself, in order to attain her soul's desire. 
To rule Rome from the fortress tomb of the Flavian Emperor was the dream of Theodora's life. It had happened once. It would happen again, as long as men were ready to sacrifice at the shrines of Hecate. Unbridled in her passions as she was strong in her physical organization, an unbending pride and an intensity of will came to her aid when she had determined to win the object of her desire. In Theodora's bosom beat a heart that could dare, endure, and defy the worst. She was a woman whom none but a very bold or ignorant suitor would have taken to his heart. Perchance the right man, had he appeared on the stage in time, might have made her gentle and quelled the wild passions that tossed her resistlessly about, like a bark in a hurricane. Suddenly something seemed to tell her that she had found such a one. Tristan's manly beauty had made a strong appeal upon her senses. The anomaly of his position had captivated her imagination. There was something strangely fascinating in the mystery that surrounded him. There was even a wild thrill of pleasure in the seeming shame of loving one whose garb stamped him as one claimed by the church. He had braved her anger in refusing to accompany Persephone. He had closed his eyes to Theodora's beauty, had sealed his ears to the song of the siren. "'A man at last,' she said half aloud, and Persephone, looking up from her occupation, gave her an inquisitive glance. The splash of hidden fountains diffused a pleasant coolness in the chamber. Spiral wreaths of incense curled from a bronze tripod into the flower-scented ether. The throbbing of muted strings from harps and lutes, mingling with the sombre chants of distant processions, vibrated through the sun-kissed haze, producing a weird and almost startling effect. After a pause of some duration, apparently oblivious of the fact that the announced caller was waiting without, Theodora turned to Persephone, brushing with one white hand a stray raven lock from the alabaster forehead. Can it be the heat or the poison miasma that presages our Roman fever? Never has my spirit been so oppressed as it is to-day. As if the gloomy messengers from Lethe's shore were enfolding me in their shadowy pinions. I saw his face in the dream of the night. She spoke as if soliloquizing. It was as the face of one long dead. She paused with a shudder. "'Of whom does my lady speak?' Persephone interposed with a swift glance at her mistress. "'The pilgrim who crossed my path to his own or my undoing. Has he been heard from again?' A negative gesture came in response. "'His garb is responsible for much,' replied the Circassian. "'The city fairly swarms with his kind.' The intentional contemptuous sting met its immediate rebuke. "'Not his kind,' Theodora flashed back. He has nothing in common with those others save the garb, and there is more beneath it than we wot of. The Lady Theodora's judgment is not to be gainsaid, the Circassian replied, without meeting her mistress's gaze. Do they not throng to her bowers by the legion? A pilgrimage of the animals to Circe's sty, each eager to be transformed into his own native state, Theodora interposed contemptuously. Perchance this holy man is in reality a prince from some mythical fabled land, come to Rome to resist temptation and be forthwith canonized. Persephone's mirth suffered a check by Theodora's reply. Stranger things have happened. All the world comes to Rome on one business or another. This one, however, 
has not his mind set on the Beatitudes. Nevertheless, he dared not enter the forbidden gates, the Circassian ventured to object. It was not fear. On that I vouch. Perchance he has a vow. Whatever it be, he shall tell me, face to face, and here. But if the holy man refused to come? Theodora's trained ear did not miss the note of irony in the Circassian's question. He will come, she replied laconically. A task worthy the Lady Theodora's renown. You deem it wonderful? If I have read the pilgrim's eyes aright. Perchance your own sweet eyes, my beautiful Persephone, discoursed to him something on that night that caused misgivings in his holy heart, and made him doubt your errand? Theodora purred, extending her white arms, and regarding the Circassian intently. Persephone flushed and paled in quick succession. "'On that matter I left no doubt in his mind,' she said enigmatically. There was a brief pause, during which an inscrutable gaze passed between Theodora and the Circassian. "'Were you not as beautiful as you are evil, my Persephone? I should strangle you,' Theodora at last said, very quietly. The Circassian's face turned very pale, and there was a strange light in her eyes. Her memory went back to an hour, when, during one of the periodical feuds between Morosia and her younger sister, the former had imprisoned Theodora in one of the chambers of Castel San Angelo, setting over her as companion and jailer in one Persephone, then in Morosia's service. The terrible encounter between Theodora and the Circassian in the locked chamber, when only the timely appearance of the guard saved each from destruction at the hands of the other, as Theodora tried to take the keys of her prison from Persephone, had never left the latter's mind. Brave as she was, she had nevertheless, after Morosia's fall, entered Theodora's service, and the latter, admiring the spirit of fearlessness in the girl, had welcomed her in her household. "'I am ever at the Lady Theodora's service,' Persephone replied, with drooping lids, but Theodora caught a gleam of tigerish ferocity behind those silken lashes that fired her own blood. Beware, lest in some evil hour I may be tempted to finish what I left undone in the Emperor's tomb. She flashed with a sudden access of passion. The Lady Theodora is very brave, Persephone replied, as stirred by the memory her eyes sank into those of her mistress. For a moment they held each other's gaze. Then, with a generosity that was part of her complex nature, Theodora extended her hand to Persephone. "'Forgive the mood. I am strangely wrought up,' she said. "'Cannot you help me in this dilemma, where I can trust in none?' "'There dwells in Rome one who can help my lady,' Persephone replied with hesitation. "'One deeply versed in the lore and mysteries of the East.' "'Who is this man?' Theodora queried eagerly. "'His name is Hormazd. By his spells he can change the natural event of things, and make fate subservient to his decrees. "'Why have you never told me of him before?' "'Because the Lady Theodora's will seemed to do as much for her as could, to my belief, the sorcerer's art.' The implied compliment pleased Theodora. "'Where does he abide?' in the Trastevere. What does he for those who seek him? He reads the stars, foretells the future, and with the aid of strange spells of which he is master, can bring about that which otherwise would be unattainable. 
You rouse my curiosity. Tell me more of him." An inscrutable expression passed over Persephone's face. He was Morosia's trusted friend. A frozen silence reigned apace. "'Did he foretell that which was to happen?' Theodora spoke at last. "'To the hour. And yet forewarned. Morosia, grown desperate in the hatred of her lord, derided his warnings. It was her fate. Tell me more. He has visited every land under the sun, from Thule to Cathay, his fame is known. Strange tales are told of him. No one knows his age. He seems to have lived always. As he appears now, he hath ever been. They say he has been seen in places thousand leagues apart at the same time. Sometimes he disappears, and is not heard of for months. But whoever he may be, whatever he may be engaged in, at the stroke of midnight that he must suspend. Then his body turns rigid as a corpse, bereft of animation, and his spirit is withdrawn into realms we dare not even dream of. At the first hour of the morning life will slowly return, but no one has yet dared to question him, where he has spent those dread hours. Theodora had listened to Persephone's tale with a strange new interest. How long has this Hormazd, or whatever his name, resided in Rome? She turned to the Circassian. I met him first on the night in which the Lady Morosia summoned him to the summit of the Emperor's tomb. There he abode with her for hours, engaged in some unholy incantation, and at last conjured up such a tempest over the seven hills, as the city of Rome had not experienced since it was founded by the man from Troy. Persephone's historical deficiency went hand in hand with a superstition characteristic of the age, and evoked no comment from one perchance hardly better informed with regard to the past. "'I well remember the night,' Theodora interposed. "'We crept down into the crypts, where the dog-headed Egyptian god keeps watch over the dead emperor,' Persephone continued. "'The Lady Marozia alone remained on the summit with the wizard, amidst such lightnings and crashing peals of thunder, and a hurricane the like of which the oldest inhabitants do not remember. I shall test this skill, Theodora spoke after a pause. Perchance he may give me that which I have never known. My lady would consult the wizard, Persephone interposed eagerly. Such is my intent. Shall I summon him to your presence? I shall go to him. In Persephone's countenance surprise and fear struggled for mastery. Then I shall accompany my lady. I shall go alone, and unattended. It is an ill-favoured region, where the sorcerer dwells." An inscrutable look passed into Theodora's eyes. "'Can he but give me that which I desire, I shall brave the hazard, be it ever so great.' The last words were uttered in an undertone. Then she added imperiously, "'Go and summon the Lord Basil, and bid two eunuchs attend him hither. And do you wait with them? within call behind those curtains. Then, as Persephone silently piled cushions behind her in the lion-armed chair, and withdrew bowing, Theodora murmured to herself, Hardly can I trust even him in an hour so fraught with darkness and peril. Yet strive as he will, he may not break the chains his passion has woven around his senses. End of Book One, Chapter Eight